3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7am on Tuesday the 3rd of October. My name is Ivka and this morning I'm in the studio with Fung and Carnegie. How are we? Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, feeling feeling good. Um, how nice was the weekend, everyone? Mm, so Have stunning. a good weekend. Beautiful. Mm. Do yeah. anything special for the extra day off? Um, no. <laughs> Just <laughs> relaxed, really. That's, yeah. that's nice. It was really nice. It was my partner's birthday, so we we did a few things, which was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Outdoors, of course. Oh yeah, I was uh, I was in Beechworth over the weekend. Oh beautiful! And it was such nice weather. And uh, yeah, it's such a cute little town. We watched the grand final there. Um, it was <laughs> a room full of Brisbane supporters uh, and maybe a couple of Collingwood supporters. And when I say Brisbane supporters, I don't think they they their regular team that they support is Brisbane. It's just that they weren't supporting Collingwood. Yes, I was with a lot of people on the weekend that uh, took that approach. Yeah. I, think, I think a lot of people uh, just didn't want Collingwood to win, but it was a fun game to watch as a not that football person. Yeah. It was close, which it was, was, very, was nice. It was very te- intense. Yeah, as someone who doesn't really follow the AFL regularly or really much sport at all, anytime I watch it though, I just like... I'm so captivated. <laughs> Get really into it. It's really good. It's a really fun sport. Like I stop. I only watch it because I follow the Western Bulldogs. But so soon as they're out, which is usually early on, <laughs> um, I kind of lose interest. But we watched the final and it was so fun. Mm. Like I grew up watching cricket. I know everybody says it's like the slowest sport in the world. But <laughs> to me, it's so exciting. <laughs> um, but this, this is also great. I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Should we talk about what's coming up on today's show? Sure. So at 7.15 this morning, we'll be joined by Lana Nguyen, who has been on the show before. Uh, Lana is coming on the show to talk to us about an upcoming festival called Overshare Video Festival. It's going to be a couple of weeks of local screenings, workshops, community film events, and so much more. So really excited to chat to Lana about that. And then at 7.30, we'll be speaking to Rachel Cook from Thorn Harbour Health. Rachel joins us to speak about the upcoming National LGBTIQ Plus Women's Health Conference, which is taking place uh in the middle of this month or towards the end of this month at the Abbotsford Convent. So talking about all the um, women's health issues and topics that will be explored at this conference. Then at 7.45, we're speaking with Dr. Jingqi from RMIT uh, University, who will be talking to us about campaigning for the yes vote in different migrant communities. 
And then at 8, we'll be joined again by Chloe from NTU Melbourne, who will be updating us on what's going on there with their strikes and the fight for workers' rights. And at 8.15, we'll be revisiting a conversation from doing time on 18th of September. So this week, the Disability Royal Commission report was released. And so the conversation we're going to share with you is with Nicole Lee, President of People with Disability Australia, talking with Marissa from Doing Time uh, in the lead up to that Disability Royal Commission report and uh, going through what approach they hope that they take and uh, regardless of what the findings are, what she thinks we will need to do going forward. Uh, We will be right back with the news headline. Wage theft is the symptom of the problem. What we're seeing is obscenely well-remunerated vice-chancellors. It's appalling how badly universities have been treating their casual workers. They want to pretend that they can continue on with business as usual. Well, comrades, we're here to say no. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. These are your news headlines for this morning, uh, October the 3rd. Australia has logged the driest September on record as fires rage in Victoria and New South Wales. This month was also Australia's third warmest September on record as El Nino and the climate crisis combined take effect. The start of October has also brought extreme conditions across much of the country. Three uncontained fires were burning in Victoria on Monday afternoon and parts of the state were warned of potential floods and damaging winds in the coming days. Bomb has also said heavy rainfall has been forecast for Tuesday and could deliver flash flooding, particularly around the eastern ranges. Conservationalists are losing hope for Australia's swift parrot if logging continues. Based on years of extra population data, new projections suggest the outlook for the parrot is getting worse than initially projected. The original projection said there would be fewer than 100 in the population by 2031 with a mean population of just 58 birds unless there was drastic conservation intervention with a 92.3% decline in the population over an 11-year period beginning in 2020. Researchers are now saying that the rate of decline is faster and the time scale in which it occurs is shorter and that the model is unfortunately an optimistic assessment because it excludes several threats to the bird. The impact of the key threat to this species is logging of its forest breeding habitat and will be further a subject to further modelling. Samantha Vine, head of conservation and science at BirdLife Australia, says what makes it worse is that unlike for some less studied species, we actually know what to do and how to turn this around starting with ending the logging and then permanently protecting their remaining breeding habitat in Tasmania. The climate same, uh, there are climate-safe rooms keeping low-income Australians cool during heat waves. A group called Geelong Sustainability is, has run a pilot to retrofit homes, um, which could be expanded to prevent the number of extreme heat-related deaths in the country. 
The project involves retrofitting a room in the homes of low-income Australians with health vulnerabilities to protect them from extreme weather. The group has installed draft proofing, insulation, and efficient reverse cycle air conditioner and solar panels to reduce energy bills so that it was not drawing energy from a source that made the climate crisis worse. The Geelong Sustainability Pilot Project was made possible after a successful bid for funding from the Victorian government. It found that participants encountered 75% fewer days where they experienced discomfort from heat. They also reported improved mental and physical well-being, increased activity in their home and fewer trips to the doctor. With extreme heat being a huge killer in Australia, um, more so than all other extreme weather events combined, advocates say that the concept of climate-safe rooms for Australia's most vulnerable should be scaled up. A pair of New South Wales landlords has been ordered to pay a tenant $5,000 over black mould. The original complaint went back to March of 2021 with the resident living in the property until April 2022, before the landlords did anything. Though, as is the case with a lot of rental stories, there is a downside. The complainant had originally asked for $15,000 in compensation, which would have helped cover the cost of moving house, damage to their belongings and a rent reduction. Um, earlier this year, renters uh, advocate an all-around great person. Um, Jordi Vandenberg has launched a website called shitrentals.org for anybody listening, any rentals, um, any renters who are listening, you can go on there and actually put um, a complaint in about being treated unfairly by landlords and real estate agents and it's a start to renters getting some sort of power back in this um, economy at the moment. Friends of the Earth Melbourne is launching their magazine, Chain Reactions, Strong Black Resistance, the full blackout takeover issue today. The issue showcases the voices of real change from First Nations organisers, community leaders and warriors, voices fighting for country at the core face of resistance and rejecting the false solutions of green capitalism. You can get a copy at foe.org.au slash chain underscore reaction. And finally... The Reimagining Old Fort Square Hospital free walking tour is happening this Saturday at um, 3pm um, at the Old Fort Square Hospital site. The tour will run from 3pm with the formal part concluding at 4.30. There'll be refreshments after. Uh, we interviewed one of the main campaigners a couple of weeks ago and this campaign is essentially bringing the community together to reimagine how this site can benefit the community as a whole. So if you would like to join... We will link to it in our show notes later today. It is free and open to everyone. That's our news headlines for this morning. We're going to go to a track now. This one is by Rihanna J, a 23-year-old R&B soul singer, originally from California, and is called Breakfast in Bed. I'ma tell you what I like, I'ma tell you how I love it Early morning after late nights, laying undercover I'ma tell you not to go, can I keep you for a moment Then you tell me that you wouldn't leave me even if you wanted I think I love you more when the day is new Love how 
the sun come in and it lay on you Fall asleep over and over just awake with you Then we do it again, can we do it again? Early in the morning, that's when I want it Can we lay here instead, stay here instead? I'll be at breakfast in bed I really need this me and you time I want it more before the noon time So don't make me get up However long we have it still ain't enough I can see the sunrise in your eyes Can we just unwind and waste time? Oh no, here comes night, not done right Do it again, can we do it again? Early in the morning That's when I want it Can we lay here instead, stay here instead? I'll be at breakfast in bed That was Breakfast in Bed by Rayana J. Hey, you all out there? Let's join the National Day of Action to stop black deaths in custody. 1pm Saturday the 7th of October at the State Library of Victoria. We need to implement the recommendations from the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody now. You say you respect country and you believe in black justice, then you turn up because we have an opportunity on the 7th of October to push this government to implement recommendations that will keep our people alive. For more information, go to blacksovereignmovement.com. That's B-L-A-K sovereignmovement.com. Black Sovereign Movement is a 3CR supporter. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to a 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're now joined by Lana Nguyen, who is an independent producer in the arts, who has come on the show before to talk about a climate for art and is creative producer for the upcoming Overshare Video Festival. So Lana joins us on breakfast this morning to take us through the festival and its programs of screenings, workshops, community film events and much more. Uh, this is taking place in Nam, Melbourne from October 7 to October 22. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast, Lana. Thanks, Lauren. Nice to be back. Um, so can you start by telling us what is Overshare Video Festival? Yeah, so I started working with Testing Grounds and um, I was originally um, coming on as the curatorial, um, uh, part of the curatorial team for Public Art Park and then um, we were also like, oh, we're also going to put on a video festival. So um, we came together and um, got in contact with some of the um, 
yeah, I guess it sort of led to um, collaborating with Garden Reflex, who are this amazing um, filmmaking duo who are really about resourceful filmmaking. And we also brought Recess, who um, is run by Olivia Coe. And um, so Andre Shannon, Jen um, Everton and Olivia Coe and I and the Testing Grounds team with Millie and Joe all sort of put this festival together. And it's been this like huge accumulation of a lot of different video works um, locally, internationally and nationally based um, stuff. But it's all about, um, I guess, videos that sort of move beyond the general idea of um, these really polished um, gems of cinema. And this is more about um, the fact that anyone can make a film and sort of celebrating that. Yeah, I was going to say, looking at the program, I was really excited to see so many different um, sorts of screenings and projects being shared with the with the public. Um, you sort of just touched on this just now, but I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit further. What makes this so different um, from other events that you've worked on before or that you've been to before? What makes it different? I guess all of it is free, which is really nice. Um, there's also a big emphasis on workshops. So there's going to be um, workshops every weekend, but also like a little film school during the middle of the festival with Garden Reflex and lots of talks. So we're really trying to give lots of people entry points into the conversation and also making films rather than just like, I guess, with other film festivals, often you pay to put your film in. It's a really like formal process where people will come and watch, but this is a bit more... I guess, um, DIY and, yeah, more about, like, the resourceful thing that we have, um, you know, cameras that we hang, that we carry around with us all the time and we can all do this practice and it is a practice that can be shared. Yeah, and is there something, in your opinion, Lana, um, uh, what what's so important or, or, I guess, it seems quite radical to, to be... Um, uh, to be so resourceful with with how we um, produce things and create art. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk that, about that a bit more and the idea of being resourceful and DIY um, uh, and being able to produce and create these um, video works. Yeah, I think what I really loved looking at Garden Reflex's work was their idea around, you know, films have this pretty privilege and what is this um, mode of, like, you know, moving beyond that and giving more people access and, like, seeing films beyond their aesthetic quality um, and more about the storytelling. So I think that's really beautiful. But also Testing Grounds, who we're working with, is all about giving people access and tools and infrastructure to make creative work and to create cultures of place and cultures of change. Um, so I think that's why both Overshare and Public Art Park, which is the festival um, of public artwork that's happening concurrently to Overshare in the Testing Grounds site, outside um, is all about giving people access like with Public Art Park we had a six week lab with lunches every week to lead up to the festival to create like a sense of dialogue but also a sense of learning together in place and I think sometimes a lot of artistic work is presented like you know this genius has gone away thought about it made this work and now we present it to a public but this is all about like we can all make work some people are doing it and this is how they've done it and you can do it with them and you know the, the access is really yeah I, I really love testing grounds have a you know a rolling open EOI that's open all the time because they're really about being in dialogue with people who want to make and supporting their practices as much as they can. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I really love what you were saying just now about um, 
you know, pretty privilege of a lot of films and, uh, you know, a lot of the things that we um, are lucky to see at at festivals and I guess when we go to um, more sort of big established like theatres and uh, and other sort of places um, to be able to present your film there. Uh, it takes a lot of, obviously a lot of work, but um, perhaps a lot of um, entry points that are closed off to large parts of the community and of course um, funding as well is a huge issue. So I like the idea of this being really something that um, literally anyone can partake in. Yeah, because sometimes it becomes a lot about individual practices and not as much about communities who are sharing, like, culture and, and, you know, the things that they're making. And I think that's, you know, in Overshare we also have an open mic night called No Gatekeeping, which um, Andre and Jen sort of thought up. And I think it's a really beautiful way of thinking about, um, yeah, how we can come together and just admire each other's work and, like, talk to each other's work as well rather than this idea. I, I've been thinking a lot about, like, celebrity culture and art and <laughs> how we really need to move away from that and um, what are these modes of relationality that we can have with each other that really centres the ideas and, yeah, the relationships that we're building with each other while we make work. Yeah, definitely. It seems like such a radical practice, you know, moving away from that like Kabbalistic idea of, like you said, focused on the individual, focused on making profit and um, sort of um, unpacking all of those things that we think are normal or what we should aim for. And like you said, working with each other and just talking to each other um, about about the process and about, you know, um, our what, what makes us want to um, create film. Um, I was wondering if there were any particular events or workshops, things happening within the festival that you wanted to tell our listeners about? Yeah, I think in the recess program, there's really amazing, like, collectives internationally who are working together um, in the sort of same sort of framework. So, like, Cinema Yang now um, from Danam have really interesting works that sort of span beyond, like, the idea of art and non-art or, like, move between those spaces. So I think their their work is really interesting and they're showing a suite of films. Um, uh, and all of Recess's um, screenings are going to be catered as well. So we're going to have Shop Bang Lock come for Cinema Kwon Yang Yao's um, one. But there's also three others that you can check out on the website. Um, yeah, I guess we're launching this Saturday. So um, that's going to start with a Recess screening and then also... Um, there's going to be a suite of films in the basement. So the whole um, the whole project is in the Testing Grounds Emporium, which is an old party emporium right next to the Queen Vic Markets, and it's a really interesting space that we're sort of taking over um, to levels of it and then a big outdoor screen as well. So uh, it's hard to pick because there's so much. I reckon everyone should go to the Overshare website, overshare.com.au, and then you can sort of pick through. Um, it is an overshare. It's, like, overwhelming, but that's sort of nice because it means you can just, like, find what suits you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. As someone who is quite indecisive, um, I would also find it hard to pick just one thing. Um, and I did have a look at the program last night and it looks like there's such such a <clears throat> incredible diversity of um, events and workshops and community film screenings and all of that going on. So, um, Yes. Actually, there's one that I thought of as well that I thought would be good to talk about on 3CR. Fox Maxi is an amazing um, Native American filmmaker who's going to be showing her a short and a feature 
Um, and there's also going to be a Q&A with an artist that she really likes, um, Ampar Lockie. And I really love her films because, I mean, one thing that I think is really amazing about them at the end is that she thanks all the territories that are involved and it's a really different method of filmmaking where it's not just about, like, the people who made it, but it's about the places that make the films. And I think that's also really nice, I guess, like, continuation of this idea of collectivity of filmmaking. Like, it's not mm. only our ideas individually, it's the places that we're connected to and, you know, um, that form our ideas and that's really beautiful. So I think um, that could be cool. Great. Um, And finally, before you go, Lana, I was wondering if you could um, tell us what what do you hope to see in terms of people's engagement with the festival and with each other? Um, I hope that people have a really nice time but also feel open to coming and like seeing the films anytime. Like really the um, public art park is going to be on during the days as well. Um, But this is mainly at night and it's going to be a really warm, inviting space where there's going to be a bar. And yeah, I really hope like people come to multiple nights and there's sort of like a dialogue of films and practice. There's going to be like a crit writing workshop. There's also going to be some weaving um, with um, old film tapes. Um, so I feel like there's lots of different entry points and I hope that everyone finds something that's appealing to them, but also that it feels like a nice place to just be around. You don't, you can choose how you interact with the, with all the work. I really like that. Um, well, thank you so much, Lana, for joining us on Breakfast this morning. We'll make sure to include the website in our show notes. Um, but all the best with the opening this weekend. And, uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on Breakfast. We always love chatting with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So that was Lana Nguyen talking about the upcoming Overshare Video Festival, which sounds incredible. So to find out more, go to overshare.com.au. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 A 3CR supporter. We're going to another track now. This is the latest from local artist Kira Puru. This is the song All My Boyfriends. All my boyfriends, they have girlfriends, so I know they know I don't need them. All my best friends, they got best friends, so they can talk when I don't meet their expectations. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. I said I'd rather be alone. I know, I know, I know. Please don't let me. me. 
was Kirapuru with their latest track, All My Boyfriends. We are now joined by Rachel Cook, Women's Health Lead at Thorn Harbour Health, to speak about the 6th National LGBTIQ Plus Women's Health Conference presented by Thorn Harbour Health and uh, ACON that is taking place from October 24 to 25 at the Abbotsford Convent in uh, Melbourne. Welcome to Breakfast, Rachel. Thank you for having me on. So, Rachel, for any listeners who are unfamiliar, can you tell us about the focus of the LGBTIQ plus Women's Health Conference? Okay, well, the focus uh, is quite broad in terms of um, being around health. So it's about physical health, sexual health, mental health and social health. And we've sort of come at um, a whole lot of uh, a range of um, research um, and academics, uh, health professionals, community health workers and just people who generally work in LGBTIQ um, community sector generally, but also for uh, other community members to come along as well. So it's basically looking at probably one of the most under-researched and underfunded cohorts in terms of health in the country. And, and of course, that's a really inclusive environment as well. So we have a lot of um, content that is around people who identify as trans and gender diverse. And this year... We also have a real focus on uh, women from migrant refugee communities and call backgrounds, and we have some really great sessions around uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander queer health as well. Yeah, great. And and having a look at the program, I really did see that um, the conference, like you just mentioned, really does aim to um, look at different intersections of um, identities and lived experiences, which is really great. Um, you mentioned these some of these just now, but I wonder if you could um, tell us a bit more, uh, what are some of the main aspects of um, women's health that we looked at in this year's 
program. Like if there are any um, particular workshops or sessions that um, are of particular interest. Yeah, and I think that's a really good question in terms of focus again and what, what comes up this year. What's really interesting in 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 the different years this conference has been running is it sort of tends to be a trend in what... So we ask people to send in abstract submissions about what their talk will be about. And this year we have, which is really great, uh, quite a focus on on sex and sexuality. And that's something we haven't really seen in the past at the conferences. And that's largely due to there being such a lack of research in this area and also due to the fact that there's a bit of an assumption that LGBTIQ women's health, especially in the area um, of, of sex, it just gets, gets lumped in with mainstream research. So what we tend to see is that um, there's a lot of misinformation out there, so particularly around STIs, um, uh, around, uh, say, for example, uh, cervical screening is something that a lot of LGBTIQ women uh, and people, people with a cervix are told that they don't need to have cervical screening because they don't have uh, heterosexual sex, which is com- a complete, completely untrue. Um, it's actually passed on by skin-to-skin contact, uh, the HPV virus, which causes uh, largely causes cervical cancer. So we've got a number of um, workshops and, and sessions that are particularly around sex, which is really great, and one of them. So I guess, I guess you know, health conferences, they tend to be fairly heavy in terms of a lot of the health information you hear can be quite challenging, but obviously with all the sessions, it's about what we're doing to overcome these challenges. But then again, we have some really sort of fun workshops like uh, Amelia Arnold's Prioritising Queer Pleasure, which will be you know, a fantastic workshop of just focusing on um, uh, sex in terms of, you know, not, not through looking at it through a, through a health lens, but looking through it uh, through a, a pleasure lens. Yeah, because like you said before, health is so much more than just looking at what's wrong and looking at the physical um, aspects of health, but it's about everything else as well, emotional, uh, sexual, mental health as well, um, which is, yeah, that's really great to hear. Um, are there any workshops or keynote speakers, sessions in particular that uh, you, Rachel, are excited to share with participants? Absolutely. Um, we have Dr. Autumn Asher Blackdeer, who is a queer colonial scholar slash activist from um, the Southern Cheyenne Nation. And um, if anyone's ever um, heard <coughs> Dr. Blackdeer speak, they're absolutely amazing, really inspiring, empowering, and just an amazing look into the issues that we should be looking at in terms of First Nations health and well-being. And uh, so they're joining us as a keynote speaker, which will be absolutely brilliant. We have a number of keynote speakers. Look, they'll, they'll all be great. They will all be great. But um, I guess this one, that you know, where Black, Dr. Black will be really centering, you know, who centers her work on Indigenous voices will be just a really, was one that I'm particularly excited about. Yeah, great. That sounds really exciting. Um and, and so you, you sort of touched on this before, but I was wondering if you could talk about this a bit more. Why is it so important to run conferences that focus on the health of LGBTIQ plus women? I think, as I, I said before, there are assumptions that queer women's health can just be lumped in with the broader population. And that, you know, and in some, you know, there is some truth to that we do have the same health issues. Uh, but to some extent, we're also not taking into account that 
LGBTIQ women also face, you know, and have faced and still face the same stigma as gay men, and that can come down to facing the same access to healthcare problems. And so what we find is, is that there's, this population is incredibly underfunded in terms of carrying out any research into, into our health. And because of that, because how it sort of works, you know, in creating health campaigns and health promotional materials, is that organisations have to justify why they need the money to create these campaigns which target individuals, individual populations. And they need they need research to back that up. So if you don't have the research, then it's really hard to get the funding to create those campaigns. And then the researchers can't get the funding in the first place. So it's just really sort of um, um, this cycle that keeps perpetuating itself. And so what we have found with these conferences, though, is that it's a way of sharing the bit of information and research that we have and, and, and in a really broad sense. And that has often led also to people being empowered and inspired to to really push the research that, that they're doing. And so, as I mentioned before, like, you know, the gaps that we saw five years ago at the conference, family violence is one of them. We, this is the first year we've had anything around... Um, family violence issues within LGBTIQ communities uh, at our conference. So, you know, we're seeing we're seeing inroads that have just been made because of this conference, which is really great. And I think for a lot of people, um, and this is, I guess, apart from, you know, academics and health professionals who are networking and wanting to share their research and, and, and come together, it's also a place which is unusual for a health conference where just the general population comes as, along as well. And that's because I think so many LGBTIQ women um, have such limited access to this information that they want to know. They want to know about their own communities. And so it's a, it's, it's a unique conference in that way. Definitely. And, you know, here on Tuesday, we've talked about before how the health system um, can be really great, but also can be a really sort of traumatic space for a lot of people, especially women, gender diverse people, um, because, you know, they're not taken seriously or they feel like they can't advocate for themselves um, in those spaces. So it, it's really important, like you said, for people to be able to attend these health conferences so that they can stay informed and, and yeah, I guess share their experiences and learn a lot more about um, themselves and their community. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, what, what we're saying to people who are coming along to this conference is that, you know, come along with an open mind and, 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 and of course, go and see sessions that have a real interest to you, but go and see sessions that you've perhaps don't interest you and that, uh, you know, you've never even thought of before. It, it, this conference, from I know, is being a participant as well. You come away with it just for weeks afterwards. You're just awe-inspired about the information you've heard um, about people's lives and stories that you get to hear about. And um, I don't know, I think you come away from this conference with just such a better understanding of what it is to be uh, um, a queer woman and, and, and transgender diverse women and also non-binary we're, we're inclusive of of, um, of of a number of genders and sexualities as well that you come away with such an understanding that basically our, our goal here is to empower LGBTIQ women and and learn how we can do that ourselves as well as a community so it it even if you've never had any you know interest or you don't work in health it's it's it, 
still no prerequisite to coming along to this conference at all. Yeah, I really like that idea of um, coming along to a, a session that you wouldn't think to go to normally or, or doesn't perhaps have an impact on you personally um, because, like you said, it helps give a more um, rounded uh you know, detailed understanding of, of people that's not just perhaps, you know, um, like a, a, a white um, middle-class perspective that is often uh, portrayed in in media and a lot of spaces. So like you said before, you know, um, learning more about First Nation, uh, First Nations queer women and also migrant and refugee women. So, um, yeah, that sounds really exciting. Um, so before you go, Rachel, uh can you tell listeners where they can go to view the program um, or to purchase tickets to the conference? Absolutely. So you can go to lgbtiqwhc.au, and if you, and if that you didn't grab that, if you just uh, if you just Google the LGBTIQ Plus Women's Health Conference, you'll you'll find our website where you can also register and you can and you can view the program and also just to let people know that um, we welcome everyone and that if uh, for people who feel like they um, the registration costs might be a bit beyond their range, we do also um, offer for some people um, scholarships so they can attend as well. So we're um, just really happy for um, anyone who has a real interest in this area to please come along. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for coming on breakfast this morning to tell us all about it. Um, I will say that the program does look really interesting and super diverse, so I really encourage our listeners to check it out. But for now, thanks for joining us on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've been chatting to Rachel Cook, who is the Women's Health Lead from Thorn Harbour Health, speaking to us about the 6th National LGBTIQ Plus Women's Health Conference taking place at Abbotsford Convent in Nam from October 24 to 25. Uh, if you'd like to find out more, you can um, go to uh, our website at the end of the show to find out more information. We are going to go to a track now. Um, this is by... Mitski. Uh, it comes from her latest album, The Land is Inhospitable and So Are We, and the song is called My Love All Mine.
And that was Mitski with My Love, Mine, All Mine. Dr. Jingqi is a program manager of the RMIT Community Languages Teacher Education Program, as well as the convener of the RMIT Chinese Australian Studies Forum. She's been working closely with a diverse range of culturally, racially, and linguistically diverse communities in Australia, and is joining us on the show this morning to talk about her work campaigning for the Yes Vote for a Voice to Parliament referendum in migrant communities. Welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me, McConaughey. It's lovely to have you on the show, Jing. Um, could you start by just telling us a bit more about the work you do and maybe about how you got in, involved in campaigning for the Yes Vote in migrant communities? Uh, yes, sure, yeah. Um, I guess I've always kind of worked um, in the space of um, Indigenous education. I'm uh, collaborating with a team of university researchers on the project about implementing Indigenous principles in uh, doctoral education in Australia. And um, one of the um, issues that we're trying to address is the population parity between uh, you know, uh, ind Indigenous population in Australia and the number of um, Indigenous students who are doing a PhD degree, and I've always thought, um, you know, they're not um, they're not properly represented in that space. And for the voice referendum, um, I have been working with a group of community leaders and mobilizers in this space, and uh, we didn't actually start. Um, as a YES campaign, we started by uh, providing a space for the YES and NO sides to have a public debate um, at RMIT, actually. Um, and then, you know, as both sides have sort of uh, escalated their arguments, um, we have been organizing more events to accommodate that um, need for, you know, um, collective decision-making, I guess, yeah. That sounds really great. Uh, do you work with any particular migrant communities? Uh, yes. Um, so for, particularly for the voice referendum, I work with CCCAV, um, which is um, a Chinese uh, community group, and also Kama, another Chinese-Australian uh, group. Um, I for actually forgot the full <laughs> name. <laughs> I always remember the acronyms of these community organizations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it's much easier to remember the acronyms. Oh, um, yes. So, can you tell us a bit about what you know the sentiment is like within these communities around the referendum in general? Um, sure, Kennedy. That's a really good question, and it's very difficult to actually um, to answer because. For me, the sentiments are very diverse and they are changing. Um, so, um, you know, like we, we uh, in the Chinese community, we constantly use WeChat groups to um, to conduct such debates and discussions. It's like having a digital forum and then different r digital rooms for each different issue. And um, uh, so what I'm saying is kind of based on um, my um, kind of trying to suss out the sentiments within this WeChat group of 90 people, so I, I can't really generalize that to other people. But based on my observation during the last few um, weeks, um, 
So there are different perspectives within both the yes and no sides. Um, so for the, please feel to interrupt me at any time if I'm kind of talking too long. <laughs> um, yeah, so for, for example, the yes sides, right? Um, there are people who are very holistic about the entire argument, but there are also people who want to advance um, a particular argument and are reserved about other arguments, and the same as the no side. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just I think it's really interesting because, um, unfortunately, in Australia, I feel like a lot of migrant communities are quite siloed, and we don't often hear from one another. So it's really good to kind of get a perspective on on what the conversations are like, and it's it's interesting to know that you know there's uh, arguments for both sides. Um, can you maybe yeah. shine some light uh, on why? Uh, certain why the migrant communities that you're particularly working with would be voting yes or no like what are what are some of the reasons uh thanks yeah yeah um i think you know like for the yes campaigners um a main part of the argument is to restore the historical justice and they see this as a golden opportunity um and it's considered as an opportunity to opportunity to redress some of the, you know, um, I guess, issues that were not addressed when Australia was founded and the Constitution was first written, right? Without the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, by the way, yeah? Um, And also intergenerational trauma to address that um, issue and also the implications of it was a huge argument. So, practically to close the gap on indigenous disadvantage in terms of, you know, um, life expectancy, um, employment, education and health. Um, And some people, um, I think the more, uh, like I said, more holistic ones argue for the connections in between, um, like how, you know, how the historical uh, injustice leads to intergenerational trauma and leads to how the issues are very hard to tackle uh, today. And that's why we need a voice, you know. Um, <clears throat> but also, interestingly, people also, especially the migrant groups, like some of the Chinese groups, are concerned about Australia's soft power, as you know, you know, how Australia actually, as a first world country, tackles um indigenous issues and that might establish a model for the rest of the world or not us, right? Um, the no campaigners, um, so they, um, they are, well, again, you know, a very layered kind of arguments. There are, there are issues about racial inequality, um, you know, concerns like, I mean, claims, right? Claims and concerns about the division of by rice, um, you know, concerns about preferential treatment, whether the voice constitutes a special right, um, and concerns about legal disputes, um, and of course, you know, very practically concerns about whether the taxpayers are going to, you know, be cost um, more more money in you know in the end. And uh, generally kind of advancing a form of uncertainty, I guess, from the no side. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, yeah. It's interesting to know,、um, you know, because I feel like migrant communities have a different way of coming at politics.、Uh, often, I feel like there are a lot of barriers for migrant communities to access information,、um, you know, language barriers and and various other barriers. Like the government often kind of puts a lot of fear into、um, migrants about you know your visas.、Um, so I feel like there's a lot of Lot of reasons、um, they may not be, you know, involving themselves in polit- politics as much as they could.、Um, yeah. Have you noticed this trend? And you know, what what are some of the barriers that you've seen in general for migrant communities?、Uh, yes, I have.、Uh, <coughs> sorry, yeah, I've noticed this.、Um, like a lot of people would just be silent about it. And、um, I guess one of the things to understand the migrant groups is they are quite diverse as well in terms of backgrounds.、Um, so I noticed people who have received higher education, for example, in Australia, are much more engaged.、Um, but also you've got first generation and second generation, or you know third generation migrant groups. Normally,、um, or usually, you know, those people who have been going through the education system in Australia、um, have more knowledge about the history and about, you know,、um, how、uh, this issue came about. But often,、uh, first-generation migrant groups who、uh, have not been working in the communities in Australia have not been going to the.、Um, Higher education systems are kind of、um, disconnected from the issue and don't understand why.、Um, so yeah, and, and, and I think、um, it also depends on like whether communities have mechanisms and spaces、um, to mobilize the political participation.、Um, social media, I still think, plays a You know,、uh, very critical role.、Um, and another issue is language,、uh, English language proficiency.、Um, a lot of the times, you know, it's, it's not easy to read,、um, especially read、um, formal written kind of、uh, documents like the Constitution Alteration Bill.、Um, and interestingly, I think practically an issue is time because. Um, political participation can be empowering. It can be frustrating, but one thing is certain: that is, it's time-consuming.、Mm. So, yeah. So,、um, I don't think、uh, you know everybody has time to kind of you know after a day tiring work、uh, go and engage in a very heated discussion. <laughs> so it's kind of sometimes I think it's a luxury to do that.、Uh, it then comes down to personal interest and will, of course. Yeah,、um, absolutely. Yeah. I I think that you know migrant communities particularly、um, often have to work different hours, to,、uh, you know, due to visa constraints and and、exactly. lots of other、yeah. lots of other factors. So、um, yeah, it's there's a lot of kind of nuances in this whole conversation, and、uh, it is interesting to to talk about it. Of course, you know. Um, we are all living on on stolen land here in Australia as settlers and as migrants, and you know, in a way, we shouldn't be having the referendum at all.、Um, but we are having the referendum, and so it's good to know that you know 
people from migrant communities are having these conversations and people are campaigning for the yes vote. Um, can, can you tell us the main messages that you're trying to give these communities about voting and you know, how can, how can other migrants um, help do that in their own communities as well? Uh, yeah, um, I don't actually have a like a takeaway message, but I'm just thinking, you know, in this um, in this process, both sides are learning, and that's the most important part because um, to actually engage in democratic political participation, it doesn't necessarily just mean that you have the right to vote. It also means that you have the responsibility to learn and to understand. It's um, I mean, voting no is an easy way out, but, um, you know, as a democratic process, I think learning and trying to understand, trying to get to know more is more important before you use the vote. Um, I just want to bring up one more issue if you um, if you have time, because I think language has played an important part. Like some of the media in the Chinese uh, communities have translated mob, like, you know, Aboriginals call themselves mobs, which means communities, right? But because mob, you know, <coughs> comes with other meanings, so it's translated as a gang or a violent group. And that is really misleading. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of the times, you know, um, you know, um, it comes down to how media is also used. Um, and I guess it comes down to our responsibility at the end. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Jing, we're running out of time for this yeah. morning. Um, yeah. But I really wanted to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I think this is a really important issue and uh, incredibly nuanced and layered, as we've been saying. So we really appreciate your thoughts on it all and the work you're doing. Thank you very much, Kanagan, for having me. Yeah. So that was Dr. Jingqi talking to us about campaigning within migrant communities uh, for the yes vote in the upcoming referendum. We'll be right back after these messages. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Corey Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's north? Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to
Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Chloe is a professional staff member of the Faculty of Arts and Vice President of Professional Staff at uh, Uni Melbourne's NTEU branch. Chloe's been joining us on the show throughout uh, the last few weeks, just talking to us about what's going on with the strikes for workers' rights at Melbourne University. Chloe's joining us again this morning to give us an update. Welcome back to the show, Chloe. Thanks for having me back. So we've been chatting about what's happening at Melbourne Uni. Uh, Can you tell us what's been happening since we last spoke a couple of weeks ago? Has there been any movement from management at all? Uh, A tiny amount. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so basically I think where we last left off was that everyone had, uh, our members had voted to take another week of strike action this week, um, which we've now gone ahead with. Um, I think the only update uh, from management has basically been um, a workload offer um, though, once again, it was delayed, so they were supposed to have it to us, um, I believe, a Wednesday two weeks ago, and then it hadn't arrived. Um, Friday afternoon, we were told that it would arrive Friday evening or Saturday morning. Once again, it didn't arrive, um, and then they sent it through on at 8.30 um, on the Monday morning when we were supposed to be at the bargaining table by, I think, like 10 or 11 in the morning. So not enough time for us to really digest it and, and see, um, you know, how like how members would respond to it. Um, but the also, also the other disappointing thing was that it was, I think, about 120 words in total, so really, really short. <laughs> so it took them, you know, a good couple of weeks to write that many words and it really didn't address most of our key claims around workloads. So the proposal was basically just to say that the university would run a survey on workloads and they would use the results of that to inform policy, um, which is once again something they've been trying to do is get everything put into policy that they have control over rather than in the EBA, which is like a legally binding um, agreement. So we're pretty disappointed and I think that's just um, sort of strengthened everyone's resolve to go out on strike again this week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Um, you know, I think I was I was saying the last time we spoke, uh, I'm an NTU member at Victoria University mm-hmm. and, you know, we're sort of on the same route as everybody else. And yeah. I just feel like these, um, you wait for these responses from management and there's these like long delays and then they come back with something this kind of small and clearly not thought out and, and it just feels, yeah, I can imagine it would fuel um, staff to continue striking. Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone feels like quite insulted, to be honest, but yeah. they're not really taking it seriously. And I think in this case, they're still denying that there is really a workload problem. And when staff are, you know, experiencing a workload crisis, it does actually just feel like they're really out of touch. And I think staff are, you know, rightly frustrated and they're, you know, saying, OK, then we'll take that out, you know, on strike. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How has um, the strike action been going this week? I know it just started yesterday, but what is staff morale feeling like and you know just from the from the 
strike action that's been happening. Are there any particular moments that stand out for you? Um, yeah, so yesterday was actually really great. So our Vice-Chancellor, Duncan Maskell, um, this week has been starting his Vice-Chancellor Roadshow, where he actually goes around and speaks to um, each faculty in the university. And so yesterday was the Faculty of Science one. Um, so we surprised him. <laughs> uh, so we walked off the job at 12 yesterday um, and then surprised him um, uh, at around 1 o'clock at the um, Science Roadshow, um, and so everyone picketed the building, and we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of members. As far as the eye could see, it was incredible. Um, we also had some really brave members from the science faculty in the audience, um, and that was incredible. And they actually, um, you know, stood up, and and um, the dean of science gave them the mic, and they were able to talk about their claims with uh, Duncan Maskell looking very sheepish in the background. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that was really, um, really awesome work by um our science comrades and um yeah i think that you know that that like uh direct confrontation with the vice chancellor i think is um really useful for us in making sure that our message gets through to the key decision makers um and it was really great to see so many staff out amazing banners um and yeah it, it was just a really great vibe yeah that sounds incredible uh and you know i've been seeing photos across uh you know, Instagram and Twitter and things like that. And it, it mm. really looks like there's a lot of um, momentum happening. Um, and as we know, there's strikes happening across the sector, which in a way mm. I feel like increases solidarity and does add to that momentum amongst staff as well as students. Um, do you think kind of more broadly speaking across the board, management is getting the message at all? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, you kind of wonder what goes on behind <laughs> the management meeting closed doors. Um, and I know from Melbourne, we do know that there is some disagreement within management, um, that the Vice-Chancellor and the Provost have a different view um, to many others on their bargaining team. Um, and so I think keeping up this pressure on the Vice-Chancellor is really useful for us in making sure that, um, you know, Duncan Maskell understands that we're not happy with what is happening at the table. Um, but, yeah, it's a great question. You, you would have to think that they, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, that they're definitely getting the message that people... Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really hard to tell, um, you know, I think, yeah, like at Melbourne at least, you know, we know that they're unhappy with the strike action. We know that last time we took strike action, we got the offer that we're wanting. Um, and it was on our terms, and so that was really good. So we know that strike action works. Um, it's just that often I think management like to play it as if it's not impacting them, and so they like to wait a little bit until after so it doesn't look like it's from the strike, but really I think we know that that kind of pressure really works. Um, yeah, and I think you're right. Across the sector, everybody's bargaining for the same things. Um, I've spoken to um, colleagues at RMIT who've said that um, their management have been doing some pretty nasty, like, union-busting-type tactics, mm. um, which is really awful. Um, I know the negotiations at Monash have been really slow. Um, so, yeah, it is quite frustrating across the board to hear how management um, management in the sector are responding to, um, you know, pretty reasonable staff demands for better workloads and you know, pay increases to match cost of living and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the key thing, isn't it? That the uh, mm. what people are asking for is actually quite basic, um, yeah. you know, particularly in this economy. Um, we've talked about how students have been a huge part 
of supporting these strikes. I guess the other thing I often wonder about with management is at this point, how are they justifying this much disruption to student learning as a university? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So a lot of the... um deans when they circulated um, to each faculty um, the information about, um, so basically there's a form that we have to fill out when we return to work just to say that we took strike action um, as legally we're not allowed to be paid for it um, when we take strike action. So the deans usually circulate that and in that message a lot of them have been saying, um, you know, that that student learning will be made up for so that actually the teaching that's been missed will be re-delivered in some way. Um, The problem with this is that who's going to deliver it? Um, You know, staff workloads are already super high and the point of strike action is to be disruptive. So um, there's actually a dispute at the moment between the NTU and the university about that, about whether content will be re-delivered. I know a lot of um, uh, students have been requesting... um, like a financial like refunds for the proportion of, of teaching they've missed. Um, and, yeah, so I think that's been really powerful that students have been putting that in and putting their complaints in. Um, and we, yeah, we genuinely feel for the students who, um, you know, who are impacted by this. But I think the great thing is the response we've seen from them has not been the, you know, the striking workers should be, delivering our content, um, the message that we've been getting from students is maybe if we put pressure on the university, they will win what they're striking for. And so that's been really powerful. And I think, um, yeah, once again, the students just continue to impress us um, with their solidarity. Absolutely. Um, What's next for the strike action coming up this week? Yeah, so we've got um, a a full schedule up on our our website, which is www.com unimelbebanow.com.au um, and so we've got yeah full program of things. I think today we're down at the VCA in Southbank um, with our comrades down there um, and then this week we've got um, a bunch of other things. Tomorrow um, we've got uh, a really incredible panel about um, racism at the university and in unions um, which will be really incredible um, and I think um, some other stuff later in the week as well. So it's going to be a really great um really great week I think with lots of different um, activities going on, lots of different rallies lots of chances for um, all our members to get together and um, you know stand in in solidarity which is particularly powerful in person I think Um, you know chanting banners all of that, it really creates a great atmosphere Um, so yeah we'll just keep turning the pressure up on management for the week Um, and yeah we'll hopefully see what we can get. We're also at the bargaining table this week, so it will be really interesting to see um, how they respond to, um, you know, particular actions, especially things like yesterday confronting the Vice-Chancellor. It'll be really interesting to see what that translates into at the table. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with that. Um, we'll be following uh, all the NTU Melbourne Uni socials to, to make sure we know what's going on. And we'd, of course, as always, love to have you back in a couple of weeks, Chloe, um, hopefully with a really good update. Fingers crossed. Thanks again for having me. No worries. Thank you so much for joining us. So that was Chloe from NTEU, University of Melbourne branch, talking to us about the strike action going on there and the uh, response or lack thereof from management. We're going to play you a track now. This is a track by Angie McMahon. It's called Exploding. I'm wild. 
That was Exploding by Angie McMahon. 
Uh, on the 18th of September, Marissa from Doing Time on 3CR spoke with Nicole Lee, President of People with Disability Australia, about the PWDA calling for a radical response to end segregation and discrimination, which was ahead of the release of the Disability Royal Commission report. That report has since been released on the 29th of September, and the government has pledged to set up a task force to coordinate its response to the findings. We're going to revisit that conversation this morning to hear Nicole's perspective on what needs to change going forward. Hello, Nicole. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's so lovely to have you again, and you've you've actually spoken about quite a few very important topics. Can you just tell us a little bit, bit about what's been going on and look at the Royal Commission? Um, well, ahead of the Royal Commission, we've been trying to be pretty strong in what we say around what, what, what it course. is that we... Uh, yeah, um, we're expecting from this report. There's a lot of high hopes riding on this report. You know, we didn't all divulge our trauma and, and the worst bits of our lives um, for no action to be taken or for recommendations to you not be very forthright. Um, so, you know, like you, you just said in, in the quote, you know, calling for an end of all forms of segregation, and that includes, you know, looking at and addressing laws where our rights are taken away, be that through mental health laws in every different state and territory, um, so abolishing forced treatment, you know, seclusion and restraint, um, looking at the ways in which we're harmed by criminal justice systems, you know, and, and finding pathways to um, reduce the numbers, you know, and abolish incarceration of people with disabilities. Um, and also you know, looking at guardianship laws where other people make decisions over our lives, so substitute decision-making versus um, supported decision-making you know, and, and supported from people in our lives that may be controlling us as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a radical step, but other countries and other jurisdictions around the world are doing these things, and Australia is lagging behind when it comes to, you know, looking at the rights of people with disabilities under, you know, the Convention of the Rights of, of, of People with Disability, um, and we really should be doing much better than we currently are. Absolutely. You were just talking more about incarceration. Can you go into more into that? Well, the fact that, you know, people with disabilities, and especially um, First Nations people with disabilities, you know, experience higher rates of incarceration than, than anybody else in this country. And we need to be looking at why rather than just simply locking people up because um, it is not the answer. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of the criminal justice system. It is not a safe place for us, whether you're a victim or whether you're not somebody that's having the finger pointed at you as doing something wrong. You know, we're not seen as whole people. We're seen as dangerous or wrong um, our mental health records get subpoenaed into courtrooms and used against us in, in, as, as victims and, and as people who've committed, you know, acts of, of um, you know, usually out of poverty, um, you know, or out of desperation. And, and we get, you know, punitive responses based on the fact that, you know, we're already behind the eight ball, based on the fact that we live with trauma, that we live in poverty, um, you know, that we're you know, not as educated or, you know, we haven't had the opportunities that other people in the world have had or in, around us that have had. Um, yet then those things are then harnessed to, you know, um, give us those, you know, to, to um, enact those responses against us. And we need to be looking at ways in which to you know, bring that down and, and, and work towards abolishing, you know, such high numbers. Actually, just abolishing the criminal justice system in general would be brilliant. Absolutely. And and in fact, having having proper 
community controlled services. And it's, it's interesting. Mm. I don't know whether you heard Daniel Andrews' comments of Premier of Victoria recently, where he said that we can't abolish the criminal justice system unless we have an alternative. Well, hello, when's that going to be happening? But when? Well, the thing is, you know, we're not going to abolish the criminal justice system tomorrow. Like all of us, you know, anybody that's in that abolition space, we know that that's not going to happen tomorrow. But what are the steps that they could be taking right now that yes. work towards that? That's what we're saying. That's what we're wanting. We, we, we're pushing that abolitionist position because we want those steps that take us closer towards, you know, bringing back things into community, bringing back things into, um, you know, restorative justice pathways, safeguarding the criminal justice system would be even a step forward. Protecting victims better, um, you know, protecting people with psychosocial disability in courtrooms, whether they're, you know, the, you know, the witness or, or, or an accused in, in, in a scenario. There's lots of things that can be done that move us closer towards having a system that works with communities versus just, you know, constantly, you know, pushing people down and having such, you know, really strong punitive responses. But that, um, you know, seem to harm, well, they not seem to, but do harm, you know, certain cohorts of the community. Tell us about the media release that People Disability Australia have, have put out ahead of this report. Yep. How did this come about? Um, well, it came about because, um, well, firstly, because, you know, we, the Commission is coming up to releasing that report. So we want to have a really strong stance, you know, straight out of the gate before the report is even released around, you know, we want to see really strong recommendations around ending all forms of segregation from education um, to employment to health to um, parenting, you know, all areas in which we you know, engage with the community around us. Like segregation starts as young as, you know, kindergarten and primary school, you know, if we're telling children who are going into prep at the age of, you know, four and a half or five that they need to go somewhere different because they are other, that they are not the same, you know, that sets up a lifetime of feeling like an outsider, feeling like you're not welcome, you know, and feeling like you're different to everybody else. So we need to abolish that because, you know, children as young as five don't know these things. They haven't been exposed to that kind of treatment and we need to stop exposing them to it so that they don't live the lives that we did. Um, you know, we're not going to turn around stigma and discrimination against people with disability if we're not in the community alongside our peers. And that starts in infancy, that starts in kindergarten, that starts in primary school. Um, if we're segregated, children are growing up and seeing us as just regular kids like them, beside them, playing with, with them and learning with them and building relationships with them. If they're not exposed to us, then they grow up with fear. They grow up with not understanding and they grow up with um, you know, stigma against it. And the only way to overturn that is we're alongside everybody else, like regular members of the community, you know, as, as just ordinary peers, as neighbours, as friends, as co-workers and as you know, students beside other students. Absolutely. So there really does need to be a lot of systemic and structural change, doesn't there? Absolutely. There really has to be such huge and, you know, structural and systemic change. And and I find it interesting that, you know, like people believe that we've come such a long way in this country, you know, that we've you know, closed all the major, you know, mental health institutions and psychiatric institutions around the country. But yes, we have closed the big major institutions. We've just split them up and spread them around the states um, and made them more hidden. And the same with segregated housing. You know, we've closed major, you know, disability institutions, but we've, you know, um, all we've done is rebuild 
smaller um, group homes where people are still segregated, where people are still locked behind doors or behind great big gates and fences and have environmental restraints. You know, it's it's just less visible than it used to be. It's just less overt. We've we've given them new names. We've given them um, names to make it sound like it's empowering or sound like there's autonomy there to give it the allure and the veneer of it. But ultimately. We don't have autonomy. We don't have freedom in those environments. Um, so therefore, you know, there needs to be that radical change and the community need to wake up to, you know, what's been happening, that we really haven't shifted very far in this country at all. We've just changed the language we use um, to to justify continuing to do it. Yeah, well, the Royal Commission has was extended, wasn't it? And yes. I've actually done some quite extensive coverage on the Do and Time show also in regards to people with disability and the police. And I just wanted to know, were were there stories at the Royal Commission about that that subject? Um, Well, there should definitely be stories in there. I know I spoke about my interaction with police and and, and with justice systems um, from my own personal experience and how difficult they are and how untrusting... I feel in them, so um, yeah, there'd be plenty of other people. But whether or not there, you know, there wasn't exactly a specific hearing on that. You know, there was lots of areas um, that weren't given, you know, the attention that they fully needed. Um, we looked at the uh, like incarceration, but you know, have we looked at what you know the criminal justice system is like? You know, you know, in and of itself for you know victims of of crimes and um, you know the. There wasn't enough, I think, done in that kind of regard or in regards to, you know, there was no hearing on the mental health sector and the way in which mental health laws are used against us to take away our choice and control of, you know, of our own treatment options. Um, there was no highlight on that, um, you know, or the use of seclusion and restraint, even though they did a, a... They commissioned a report on restrictive practice, but that report leaned very heavily on Victoria's Mental Health Royal Commission. So there are areas in which, you know, it hasn't been highlighted enough. And, you know, yes, the commission got extended, but, you know, that was because nobody could predict that we had COVID, that COVID was going to, you know, impact us and impact us ongoing into the future either. Um, but... Ultimately, we wanted a commission that was done well, and if that meant it went for for another couple of years, then it should have gone for another couple of years, in my opinion. Do it right versus do it fast. Absolutely, Nicole, and I'd love to have you back again to talk about your interactions with the police as a person with a disability, and I'd like to talk to you about the COVID, but we're running out of time. Are there any final comments? Uh, no, no, I guess it's just watch this space um, and that there will be advocacy on the other side of this report being released um, that, you know, disabled people aren't going to go quietly into the night, so to speak. We don't owe anybody anything. We don't have to be grateful for anything. We just, what we want is a report that is frank and fearless. Um, and even if it's not, we will be frank and fearless on the other side of that report. So just to the community that. Um, no one's going to sit back and allow this not to be taken seriously. Absolutely. We have to fight ableism, isn't it? Yes. Yes, we certainly do. <laughs> that was Marissa from Do In Time talking with Nicole Lee, President of People with Disability Australia, which was recorded ahead of the release of the Disability Royal Commission report a few weeks ago. That is all we have time for this morning. Just a quick rundown of what we had on the show today. We started off the show this morning at 7.15 with a conversation with Lana Nguyen about uh, 
the upcoming Overshare Video Festival. If you wanted to know more, you can go to overshare.com.au. That is on from October 7th to the 22nd. At 7.30, we spoke with Rachel Cook from Thorn Harbour Health about the upcoming LGBTIQA plus Women's Health Conference happening on the 24th and 25th of October at the Abbotsford Convent in Nam. At 7.45, we spoke with Dr. Jing Chi, the program manager of the RMIT Community Languages Teacher Education Program and convener of the RMIT Chinese Australian Studies Forum, who has been working closely with a range of culturally, racially, and linguistically diverse communities to talk through uh, campaigning for the yes vote in the upcoming referendum. At 8 a.m., we spoke with Chloe from NTU at the University of Melbourne. Uh, Chloe was providing us with an update on the strike action that's been happening there and the response from management thus far. And just then we ended with a clip from Doing Time where Marissa spoke with Nicole Lee, President of People with Disability Australia, about the PWDA calling for a radical response to end discrimination. This conversation happened just before the release of the Disability Royal Commission report. That's all we have time for this morning. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We'll be back next Tuesday. Stay tuned to breakfast throughout the rest of the week. And as always, Accent of Women is coming up next. Three CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.